0: Well, hello everyone, it's Pastor Adam again, and I have another uh, teaching today, another message, so let's go to the Lord in prayer first. Father, we thank you for today, this glorious day, and we, we are well aware, Father, that there are issues in each of our lives, and when we think about that, Father, we come to you humbly and ask for your help and guidance, and we ask again for your perseverance to, to give us faith, to increase our faith, and to encourage us to not live in fear uh, and to be bold and courageous and to renew our minds to how we are to look at things from the eternal worldview, from your worldview, instead of the here and now only. So we thank you, Father, for this and ask for your grace and mercy through what your Son, Yeshua, Yamashaya, Jesus the Messiah. Amen. So uh, <clears throat> I titled this today Mind, Mindset, and I think you'll grasp why. Um, so we're going to just dig right into the Word of God, and we're going we're gonna to start with the, with the Scriptures from Philippians, the book of Philippians, chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. So here we go. Follow along, Philippians 2, 1 through 11. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion... So I started with that, and I want to point out a couple of ways for us to, you know, if we can take a hold of an understanding of this passage, you know, to grasp this. First off, there's this undeniable fact of a powerful doctrinal truth right here in this scripture, in these scriptures. There is tremendous, tremendous significance on Jesus and what he did contained in this discourse, It gives us remarkable insight into the nature and the work of Yeshua. It tells of his equality with God and of his coexistence with humanity, right? That Jesus is 100% God and 100% man all at the very same time. It tells of his obedience to the will of the Father and obeyed even unto death and death by crucifixion. But it also tells us of his ultimate exaltation, how every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. Secondly, but not any less significantly, is the very simple and practical message that we must see this section of Scripture in context with the surrounding Scriptures. We must see it within the context of the book of the Philippians as a whole and the overarching message Scripture is making to this church that Paul was writing to in Philippi. Paul is writing to them to instruct them on how they are to live, how they're to conduct themselves. Now, this is some really practical stuff that's not out of date for us today, but in fact, is the way that we are to live as well. See, this this discourse, this text here is not primarily about the theology surrounding Jesus Christ. I mean, it does contain that, but it's not only that. It's a passage from a letter to an assembly, a church, the ecclesia. And it's telling them, it's giving them Jesus as their example. It tells them that by following Jesus as example, they can successfully live this Christian life. It's, it puts forth Jesus, who was and is God, as the supreme example. It is Jesus who we are to follow. It is Jesus' actions we are to emulate. Here's the practical message of this text. I mean, there's, there's so much here, but it just kind of summarizes this. Here it is. Have the same mindset, the same attitude among yourselves, which was in Jesus Christ. If we are to comply with this directive in in verses one through four that we just read, we must possess the same mind, same attitude as Jesus has. And then, you know, verses six through 11, they show us how that is to be done, which is how? It says by living like a servant, have a servant mindset based on the example Jesus gave us of servitude. And that would be, that will be consistent with our new nature that we receive when we submit to Jesus as Lord and Savior. It's just, this is what this transformation will do. If you're, we're transforming properly, we're gonna be servant-minded. In other words, we cannot allow Jesus to live through us and not be a servant. Only through servanthood can we be obedient to God's call and purpose on our lives. So I think before we can understand what verses 6 through 11 have to say, we have to read the instructions given to us in verse 5. Now verse 5 says, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Well, verse 5 sets the stage, in other words, then, for verses that are going to follow, which are 6 through 11. It sets the tone. It gives insight into and makes their application very clear. And that clear and unmistakable application is this. Do what Jesus did. Think what Jesus thought and have the same attitude towards servanthood that Jesus had. Verses six through 11 spell out in, you know, I guess very descriptive terms, not only what that attitude was, but how it was lived out in Jesus's life. But remember, that type of attitude remains an an abstract, if you will, an intangible until it is physically expressed. What, What am I getting at? Or in other words, an attitude is an unknown until it is exercised in actions. Attitude should always determine actions because actions always demonstrate true attitudes. In other words, what you are is what you will do. So therefore, verse five, you know, coming on the heels of verses one through four tells us that we are to be servants just as Jesus was a servant. Well, how... How really was Jesus a servant? Well, let's, let's review again verses 6 through 11. Here they are again, Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 11. Here it's talking about how Jesus was a servant. Here we go. Who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and uh, some of us at this point will say something and have said something when you've heard this before. They'll say something like, well, I, I can't have the same ministry Jesus had. He was God. I'm not God. And you know what? That's certainly true. You get no argument there. However, we can have the same attitude towards ministry, the same attitude towards servanthood, and that type of attitude will drive corresponding actions that will prove and our actions that were servant-minded. I want to mention a few things regarding this, you know, concept, this idea of being a servant or servanthood. A few things we must understand and employ in our lives if we want to become servants like Jesus is this. One of them is the reality that being a servant means you gotta give up your own rights. And this reality gets its roots from verse 6 that we just read, right? Because the scripture tells us Christ always has been, is currently, and always will be God. The original language here says that Christ was of the very same nature as God, and that he was, in fact, God. This truth is foundational for the Christian mindset, for, a Christian, for Christianity, for the church, I mean, Peter testified when Jesus asked him, who do you say that I am? And Peter replied that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. I mean, although Jesus was manifested as a human, he continued to display the attributes and attitudes of deity. Now, I have no problem stating this, that uh, this is a mystery, this this dual nature of Jesus Christ, that he's 100% God and 100% man. God the Son took himself a human nature and he remains forever a true God and true man, two natures and one person forever. How we can figure that out? Well, we can't, the way our mind works. But if we understand the way God and we start and, and submit that way and let the Holy Spirit work on it and renew our mind, then we'll be able to start to understand some of this stuff. But you can't understand it until then. That's my, why I always talk about Romans 12 too. It's my, my favorite scripture. And what does that say? Romans 12, 2 says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by what? By the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's good, pleasing, and perfect will is. See, these two natures that Jesus displayed remain distinct without any intermingling, but they nevertheless compose one person, Christ, the God-man. Jesus lived as 100% human and 100% God. He fought the same temptations, the same struggles that you and I fight because we still are in the flesh. Yet because of his divine nature, he was able to overcome them and to live out his divine nature in the flesh. And and what scriptures are saying here is that because we have Jesus living in us, if you're born again, you may not realize this, you have Jesus living inside of us. You and I then, although living in the flesh, can demonstrate this divine nature, Jesus residing with us within us in the Holy Spirit enables us to live out the divine nature. Jesus living in us enables us to overcome the fleshly desires, to overcome the temptations to live like the rest of the world lives, to overcome the desire to live for self rather than living for others. Scripture wants to make it very clear that Jesus was and is God. Not just a prophet, not just a teacher, not just a healer, he was, and is God incarnate, right? He came in the flesh. God is with us, Emmanuel. Here is a scripture from the Gospel of John, right? Remember this from John chapter one, verse 14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. I mean, amen. And so it's extremely important that we understand what is being said in these scriptures in Philippians? Jesus is in fact God in the flesh, he is God. And then we read that Jesus did not consider equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage. That was verse six, right? In other words, Jesus did not hold on to his rights as, as being God. <coughs> he was not you know, looking out for himself but he was looking out for others. He surrendered, he gave up his rights for us, for you and me, for everybody. He gave up his privileges in order to come as a man and suffer to the death that you and I deserve. And although Jesus had access to all the privilege and power to which his divinity entitled him, and although Jesus could have exploited that privilege and power to dominate his creation, Jesus considered his deity, his position, as an opportunity for servants and obedience. Instead of using all he had been given to his own advantage, Jesus used it for others, for those who had nothing. He used it for you and I. All of the authority and power available to Jesus became a channel of giving rather than a conduit for giving. His focus was not on being served, but upon serving others. Not upon exalting himself, but of emptying himself in obedience. This contrast is clear. It's striking, and it's pronounced between the value system of the world and the value system of God, right? In our world, he who has the most money, has the most power, has the most prestige, and is worth the most is viewed as successful. But in the worldview of Jesus, it's the opposite. He who is the highest is he who does not live for himself, but for others. He who loses his life, Jesus said, is, is one who gains his life in eternity. He who would be the the greatest among us is he who is our servant. It's like the upside down pyramid. It's not like it. It actually is. He came as the king and inverted it and he's not at the top. He's at the bottom serving, serving to death. Now that, that's it. That's what it takes. So of course, you know, we kind of, we, we fall very short of that. I mean, folks, if you and I are ever going to be servants, if we are ever going to have the same attitude as Jesus, we're going to have to give up our rights, give up our privileges in deference to others. That's what Jesus did. And if we will follow him, that is what we must do. Servanthood means giving up my rights for the benefit of others. Now, I I hope this is making sense. Now, another aspect of becoming a servant revolves around this idea of becoming less so that others can become more. Verse seven says, rather, Jesus made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. So it's, it's like Jesus emptied himself, literally poured himself out, made himself nothing. He emptied himself of significance. One big biblical version uh, in this part uses the words Jesus limited himself. Well, how did, how did Jesus do that? By taking on the form of a slave, of a servant. The very nature of serving. Christ came as a servant, not as the Lord, even though he was the Lord and is the Lord. He gave himself for others, even though all of creation should give to him. He he was God living out a truly human life. Jesus became a servant. He willingly left the splendor of heaven for the smell of a stable. He left the company of angels for the company of of humans. He he who was omnipresent took upon himself the limitations of humanity. What a dramatic distance Jesus traveled from heaven to the cross, from being served to serving. From the the golden streets of heaven to the cobblestones of Jerusalem, from, from the songs of heaven's choirs, right, and choruses to the cries of an angry mob. And why did he do it? He did it to be obedient, and he did it because of love. Because of love, For you and me. This is at the heart of what it means to follow Jesus Christ. It means to lose our life to save it. It means to be emptied of ourselves in order to be able to be filled with him and his passion for others. It's no wonder that many people find the health and wealth Christianity so attractive. That that type of Christianity is all about getting instead of giving. It's all about being served instead of serving. It's all about God obeying us instead of us obeying God. Our fallen nature is not interested in being emptied, right? We're interested in being filled up. We're more interested in becoming something or someone than in becoming nothing and no one. It runs contrary to our fallen sinful nature to become less so that somebody else can become more. And yet, here it is, if we're gonna be like Jesus, we must become servants, allowing others to become more at our expense. This may be a little hard thing to swallow. You might not be chewing this too well and swallowing it down. You might be spitting it out, but I hope it's sinking in. <clears throat> All right. So continuing on, let's look at another aspect of what servanthood means. And in, in, in this part, it says it, it's being obedient, whatever the cost is. In verse 8, it said, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. There it is. He humbled himself. Now, it's, it's. I mean, it's impossible, I believe, for us to grasp the depth, the depth of this statement, to understand the intensity of what the word of God is telling us here. He who made all of us, he created all of us, who knew the hearts of all men, who had authority over all men, humbled himself and allowed himself to be executed by his creation. And not just any execution, execution on a cross. See, folks, the early church, the early assembly, and that time frame, in that society, They did not view the cross the same way you and I do. They did not wear crosses around their necks or in their ears or earrings or put tattoos or shirts, okay? Can you imagine today if someone had a solid gold electric chair and put diamonds in it? People would think you're nuts. In that day and age, when Jesus walked the earth over 2,000 years ago, they viewed a cross as you and I might view the gallows. Crucifixion was not simply a form of execution. It was the lowest form of execution, reserved for the lowest class of people, for those who had no standings or no rights. And so therefore that, that Jesus, God incarnate, should die on a cross was indeed a scandal, as Paul says in, in Galatians chapter 5, verse 11. I mean, at the time of this crucifixion was going on, right? Crucifixion was the lowest anyone could stoop socially. Crucifixion was the cruelest form of official execution in the Roman Empire. Generally, the victim was first tortured in in various ways and then fastened to a cross by impaling, nailing, binding with ropes, or some combination of all three of those. Death often came slowly over a period of days as the victim experienced increased blood loss, thirst, hunger, and attacks by wild animals and suffocation. You can see how it came as no surprise that the message of God on the cross was a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. That's what 1 Corinthians 1 verse 23 says. Just process the depths of humility to which Jesus sunk in order to be obedient to the will of the Father. But he was, Jesus was obedient, obedient to even death on the cross. And it's the cross that the true nature of God is revealed. (laughs) That nature of God is love. That's the true nature. He came to give himself for us, to die for us, to die at our hands, because that's what it took to redeem us, to buy us back from the condemnation we brought upon ourselves through our sin and rebellion. There is nothing... He will ever ask of us that will cost us as much as going to the cross cost him. We can never give up as much as he gave up. We can never humble ourselves as much as he humbled himself. I've spent the last 20 years doing whatever I can to make it crystal clear that each and every one of us has a clear understanding of what portion of the kingdom right, you are assigned to steward for God. Your ultimate eternal stature is not based upon whether you became a preacher or a pastor or a teacher or, you know, anything in any field. I just use those in the Christian world because so many people think they need to become a pastor, a preacher, or a teacher. They think that's the success. Uh Uh-uh. It is based on whether or not you operated in the full capacity of the calling God had for you within the body of Christ that you're doing your assignment within his family. Now, the enemy of God, the Satan, has a problem. And it's a problem he doesn't want you to know about. See, let me just do a quick recap. The earth wasn't given to the Satan to own, it was given to the Satan to buy lease. The first Adam wasn't given ownership of earth, it belonged to God. He was given stewardship, not ownership. Right, Adam was given stewardship. He was to steward the garden and everything. Let me give a quick lesson on the difference between stewardship and ownership. Have you, if, if you've ever rented a car, you'll get at this. If you ever, right, it's not your car, right? You got to return it. Well, the earth lease was given to man, to Adam. And with that assignment, God told him, you have stewardship. But... We all know what happened in Genesis chapter three. God took the stewardship from Adam and gave it to the Satan after the initial sin in Genesis three. That's why when we read Luke chapter four, the Satan is boasting to Jesus and says, all these kingdoms have been given to me, Jesus, and I can give them to whoever I will. These kingdoms were created by God and the Satan was given them in the transfer of the title from Adam to Satan back in Genesis chapter three. And I can say all this, and I'm confident this is a lease and not ownership. You want to know why? Because in the New Testament, when Jesus shows up, the demons get all nervous and ask, what are you doing here now? They say, we know, the, the demons go, we know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. Have you come to torment us before the time, they said. That's in Matthew chapter eight. They say, why are you here now? Are, you're here early. Are you going to torment us before the time? See, this is what the Satan knows and so many demons know, but the church still doesn't know that there's a time for torment and the Satan expects it at the end of the lease. Now, God's plan, which the Satan doesn't know, was to become a man to die for man. That's what we saw in Jesus, right? The Satan figured if he could get God's creation, man, right? God creates man and Satan gets all jealous, right? So the Satan figures if he could get God's creation man to rebel sufficiently to the point of deicide, to the point of thinking he's now better or equal to God, just like the Satan did, the Satan would then be able to have a stalemate with God over ownership of earth. See, the Satan and those fallen angels have rebelled to the point of deicide. And so if man does the same thing, then God's creation can't rule earth. But here's the problem for the enemy of God it never entered the mind of the Satan because he is so selfish and doesn't want to serve but only be worshiped, honored, and served. So Satan never dreamed that God would become a man and die for man to liberate man from his own sin. And see, when Jesus dies, the Satan and the demons all have a very short celebration because it's over real short, because right, in three days he resurrects. And because Jesus never sinned, he now becomes a whole new order of species, a God-man with whom sin has no power and death has no claim. Remember when Jesus gets ready to ascend to the Father in, in the book of Acts, where you see that, remember, right before he goes, Jesus tells the disciples, go wait in Jerusalem for the comforter, for the Rohakadesh, the Holy Spirit, right? He says, I'm gonna go back to the Father and I'm gonna ascend Someone to you. This is the third part of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit. is Jesus is telling them, they're gonna receive what? You're gonna receive the roha HaKhadesh, the Holy Spirit. And the moment you receive that, the same programming that Jesus had on the inside, they will have. They're gonna have what Jesus had then. The only difference <coughs> is Jesus had nothing to undo, and you and I have to renew. That's what I already talked to us. What do we got to do? We got to renew our minds to what's going on, to this new new way we are to be because we're a new creature, all right? And so that is why we must be willing to do whatever he asks whenever he asks it, wherever he asks it. For many of us, we have already predetermined the thing God wants us to do. It's like we've set the parameters of how we're going to serve. I mean, we'll only serve in such and such a place and and such and such a way, right? And such and such a day and time. We have convinced ourselves that God would never ask us to do anything outside of that box that makes me uncomfortable. (laughs) In reality, we have simply decided we are not going to listen to God when he asks us to go outside that box. We have, in other words, selective obedience. and, And to be honest, that's not obedience at all. Genuine discipleship involves being obedient to Christ whatever the cost, whenever the call, wherever the call, and however the call. There is no part-time, partial disciples, folks. With Jesus, it's either all or nothing, hot or cold. He doesn't want us lukewarm. Servanthood means being obedient whatever the cost. It really is a privilege to honor God by serving. Hallelujah. And in case you're not aware, another aspect of servanthood is some form of reward, I guess. Look at the last three verses here in Philippians 2, that first part of Philippians 2, verses 9 through 11. Here's what it says. Therefore, God exalted Jesus to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So because Jesus is obedient, because he humbled himself, because he was willing to pay the price, he will be exalted. The Father has given him the name at which every knee will bow and tongue confess that he is Lord. That principle here is this. God rewards our humble, obedient, faithful service. Proverbs chapter 22, verse four says, the result of humility is the fear of the Lord along with wealth, honor, and life. Matthew 23, verse 11 says, the greatest among you will be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. James chapter four, verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Luke chapter 14, verses 11 through 14, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. He also said to the one who had invited him, when you give a lunch or a dinner, don't invite your friends, your brothers, your relatives or your rich neighbors because they might invite you back and you would be repaid. On the contrary, When you host the banquet, invite those who are poor, maimed, lame, or blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. That's why the church and its doors should always remain wide for anybody to come in because it's a hospital, okay? We need to renew our minds to an eternal worldview, folks. Not all rewards are for this life. And the last thing, Want to tell about this? Being a servant is more about being than it is about doing. See, l- let me, let me talk about that. There is no genuine life in Christ that is not at the same time, by the power of the Holy Spirit, being transformed into the likeness of Jesus. Any religion that puts self above others is not and cannot be true Christianity. I mean, folks, if Jesus Christ, being God, humbled himself to become a servant for others, then how can we as his followers who are not God in any way exalt ourselves? If he died for others, how can we fail to live for others? You know, we, you know, we just tend to look for that one big experience where we can demonstrate our faithfulness to God, demonstrate our servanthood by giving of ourselves in some like kind of heroic fashion that gets noticed. But you know what? In reality, that's usually not how it happens at all. In reality, it happens in the small, everyday, somewhat uneventful occurrences of our lives. This attitude, this mindset of serving others instead of being served, of giving rather than getting, of obeying rather than dominating is lived out in the myriad of interpersonal exchanges we encounter every day. How, How we treat that checkout person at the grocery store, how we talk to the man collecting our garbage, It is most often not seen in how we treat those who are socially above us, but how we treat those who are socially beneath us. I mean, here's the question. Are you here to serve or are you here to be served? Is your attitude like the world's or is it like Jesus Christ? Are you going through the motions of service? Are you becoming a servant? This example has been set right here. The call is clear. All that remains today is our response, our decision, our commitment. I end with this question. Will we be like Jesus today or not? Hallelujah. God bless you all. Until next time.